Hello and welcome to episode 1 of Frost, a Canadian cold case podcast. Today we will be looking at a case from Torbay, Newfoundland on the east coast, uh, just north of St. John's. The case is the 23-year-old disappearances of then 14-year-old Adam O'Brien, 11-year-old Trevor O'Brien, and 4-year-old Mitchell O'Brien, abducted by their father, then 40-year-old Gary O'Brien. According to reports made by Diana Boland, uh, then Diana O'Brien, it started on the morning of November 9th, 1996, when her ex-husband, Gary O'Brien, had a conversation on the phone about his weekly visitations that he was supposed to have on Saturdays. During this call, uh, Diana informed Gary that Mitchell was not feeling well and that he should stay home. But Gary was insistent that that all three boys be ready to be picked up for the visitation. It wouldn't be until later that day, about 8.30 p.m., that the reason for the insistence would become apparent. Uh, when uh, Gary O'Brien called Diana and informed her that he would not be bringing the children back. Furthermore, he informed Diana that he'd built a trap in his house and that if anybody attempted to enter the house, it would explode. Police would later find that the front door and even the doorbell had been rigged to two 400-pound propane tanks and had they been set off would do significant damage to both the house and the neighboring houses. While we don't have any confirmed reports about his movements after the abduction, uh, we do know the vehicle he was driving was 1989 Ford Tempo. Uh, unfortunately, about 11 months after the incident, the front end and engine assembly of a 1989 Ford Tempo was found was found on in the waters off of Redhead Cliff, a 90-meter drop into the Atlantic Ocean. The serial number on the engine matched that of the serial number of Gary's car. However, there was no indication that anyone was in the car when it went into the ocean. While the engine in the ocean is a strong possible lead, some people believe, including Diana, that the engine was left there and the bombs were set to mislead police so that Gary O'Brien would have a chance to escape. As with many cases of this age, leads have been drying up since the 90s. However, since the abductions in 1993, more than 200 uh, sightings have been reported from both Canada and the United States, uh, including a strong possible lead that originated in Thunder Bay, Ontario from an anonymous lady who stated that she had babysat the children sometime after the abductions had occurred. She could have been making all this up. However, according to police, she had known uh, one of the children's uh, family nicknames and it led some credence to her claims. Unfortunately, after a number of attempts to follow up on the lead, police were not able to track down the tipster. Since the time of the abductions. Uh, charges have been laid against 
uh, Gary O'Brien, including two different sets of charges that I can find. Uh, one is from Interpol, and the charges from Interpol are charging Gary with abduction, setting traps likely to cause bodily harm, breaching undertakings, and breaching recognance. The second set of charges, as far as I can find, are uh, charges for kidnapping, attempted murder, and crimes against life and health. He also has a history of psychiatric problems and suicidal tendencies. He is considered dangerous and extreme caution is advised. Anybody who has information about the whereabouts of the O'Brien boys or their father should contact the Royal Newfoundland Constabulatory at 709-729-8000. The following is a description of Gary and the brothers at the time of their disappearance. Afterwards, I will be adding a age-progressed photo of the three boys to the Facebook page. I've heard mention of an age-progressed photograph of Gary on a couple of websites, but I have not actually seen one, so I will not be able to add one. If I come across one, I will add one later on. Gary O'Brien, at the time of the abductions, was approximately 40 years old, born October 17, 1956. He was about 5 foot 10 inches tall, weighed about 135 pounds, had gray and black hair, blue eyes, and had a false tooth. Adam O'Brien, at the time of the abduction, was approximately 14 years old, born October 28, 1982. He was Five foot two inches tall, weighed about 100 pounds, had brown hair, blue eyes. Trevor O'Brien was 11 years old, was about four foot eight inches tall, weighed about 70 pounds, had brown hair, blue eyes. Mitchell O'Brien was four years old, was about three foot tall, weighed about 47 pounds, had brown hair and blue eyes. So I need to add in a disclaimer here. So the information previously heard is all the information that I could find. So information past this point is should be considered a matter of opinion, whether it be educated or just a guess. In the matters of opinion, I'll start with those that, well, are more impo most important, to least important. The first is Diana Sanders, as she's known today. She believes that her ex-husband and her sons are alive and maybe taken off somewhere off grid like a religious convent or some, uh, something of the likes. She also firmly believes that there are people out there that know exactly what happened to her, her ex-husband and sons. One of the facts that may lay, uh, lend some credence to this fact is that in the years after his disappearance, three of, the, of his close friends committed suicide. Some might believe that might just be coincidence. Others might be might believe that it was out of guilt. Neither of which I can say for absolute certain. On the other hand, uh, Gary's own sister believes that both Gary and his sons are actually dead. While I'm not sure about the rest of Gary's family, Diana's family seems to be split down the middle, some believing worst-case scenario, others holding out hope along with Diana. While the police are putting in a valiant effort to attempt to find Gary and hopefully 
uh, Diana's uh, sons. In a 2014 article, a newly promoted chief, uh, Robert Johnston, said that he will always follow up on new leads, but looking into the evidence, especially after they found the engine block in the ocean off Redhead, there was a higher probability that it could have been a murder-suicide. My opinion on this case, it's not a very strong one either way. I just don't feel like there's strong enough evidence to say that they are deceased or that they are still alive. A fair number of people have pointed out that there would be difficulties in getting off of Newfoundland unnoticed, but there are a number of ferries that run year-round, including one to the French islands off of Newfoundland. And the French islands ferry is just a, about a four-hour drive away from Torbay, as opposed to the 12-hour drive to get to the one to the mainland. There's also private fishing vessels that they could have gotten to as well. Not saying that either of these options are overly likely, it's just possibilities. It may also explain why Interpol is also involved and not just the Canadian and American authorities. Also brings me to the other fact that only a portion of the Ford Tempo was found with no proof that there was anybody in it when it went into the ocean. So one of my fellow podcasters pointed out that it was likely that Gary O'Brien just drove the car into the ocean and that they were dead. Well, what, my key problem with this theory is that, well, only a portion of the car was found. And the early rumors that I had read was that the car was actually found some distance off the coast, like possibility of around 10 kilometers. And that only the engine block had actually been found, no other part of the vehicle. After speaking with a group called Staff's Unity Microplastic Research Group, who deals with some uh, aquatic forensics, they believe that it's not likely that the engine would have separated from the car while submerged, um, even talking through some of the, uh, the possibilities. If the car had gone in in one piece, it's likely that it would have remained in one piece until it degraded, and I don't believe that the car was actually in the water long enough to fully degrade, especially considering that they were able to get a accurate uh, serial number off of any part of the engine. Does this necessarily mean, though, that it wasn't a murder-suicide? No. It's just less than likely that it was a murder-suicide by that uh, manner. In the end, I'm just not entirely sure we'll be able to figure this out short of actually finding Gary or somebody coming forward and letting us know exactly what happened. To go along with the age-progressed photographs, Diana has actually, in previous news releases, given us an idea of how she thought boys would be like today. This is of course a couple years old so the ages might be a little off. I will attempt to adjust the ages as they would uh, meet today's standards.
According to Diana, Adam, the oldest, would be approximately 37 years old today. She is almost certain that he'd have children and that she is a grandmother. Trevor, the middle child, was a comedian and a little more rambunctious. She pictured him as her party boy, a kind of playboy, loving to party and women and all that. She believed him to be the complete opposite of Adam. The only person that she had a real problem trying to describe was Mitchell, as he was a preschooler the last time she saw him, and his personality was only just starting to grow. So there would definitely be difficulty trying to figure out what his personality would be like today. Unfortunately, that is really all that I have for this case uh, this week. I was hoping for a bit longer one to start off with, but this seemed like a really important one to get out. Uh, and I hope that it sees a happy conclusion eventually. Again, please, if you happen to know anything, or you happen to be that anonymous super, please contact the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. I am certain that I would love to hear from you. As for our special end of the episode segment called Interesting Historical Criminal Facts of Canada, we have an interesting one from Kingston, Ontario. This story is brought to you from the book called Kingston Penitentiary, The First 150 Years from 1835 to 1985 by authors Dennis Curtis and Andrew Graham. A young criminal mastermind decided that he was going to break into Kingston Penitentiary. Young Tom Hardy, or Thomas Hardy I should say, had been released from the penitentiary just two weeks before. After serving three years, you'd think he'd have enough of it. He apparently didn't have enough money to get along. So, brought on by drink, he decided that he would take a ladder to the walls and decide to scale them and climb back in where he... Well, the problem with that is the rope that he used to climb in somehow became unfastened. And after rifling through the cash box in the clerk's office, he found that he couldn't find his way back out. He attempted to build a ramp, but that just exhausted him, and the morning light overtook him. So he took shelter in some straw in a stable, but was soon discovered. So the prison ended up having one more prisoner than it really should have come the morning. For all that hard work, Hardy ended up getting six more months in the local jail. When he was released on July 31st, 1858, he asked to see the warden at Kingston Penitentiary because he apparently wanted to get back the coat he had left behind during the break-in. After the warden told him to basically kick sand, he left town and sailed away never to be seen again. You would think that would be the first and only time that the Kingston Penitentiary would have been broken into while it was in operation. But it wasn't. And maybe I'll tell you the story about the other time in a later episode. We'll just have to see. And that will be all for episode one. I do apologize about the short episode. I was expecting there to be a little more on this case than there actually was. But hopefully episode two will be a lot longer. 
I'd like to thank everybody for putting up with me and giving me a chance. This is the first time I've done a podcast, so there's going to be some hidden misses and rough going ahead until I finally get into the swing of things. I'd like to thank a few people, like the great guys over at the Dark Poutine. Uh, this is your shout out from the Alabama plaster painter. <laughs> you guys killed me with that. Thank you. And a special shout out to all those that are down in Australia t- uh, tonight. We wish you all the best down there and stay safe from the fires. Also a shout out to all the people that have joined the Frost Facebook group as well as those following us on Twitter. You guys are great and thanks for sticking with us and hopefully we'll be entertaining you for a long time. Next episode I will also be adding in a subsection about other podcasts that are really good to listen to. And please, if you have any recommendations for cases to cover or just want to send out a message, please feel free to email me at thelazysherlock Yes, that's the lazy Sherlock at hotmail.com, and I will strive to respond to every message that I get. Thank you, have a good evening, and a happy 2020.